Remain standing and, and look, look at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and, and uh, said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we stand before you today to hear your words. We pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. God, may we hear the things that, that you have to say, not just to process those things through our minds, to, to check our memory banks, to see if these are things we already know or don't know. But Lord, may, may we uh, stand before your word like a person stands before a mirror. And may you examine and, and, and bring to light our life and our practices and, and what our beliefs that are lived out look like. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, not long ago, it seemed like all the news sources were just speaking uh, uh, constantly and were preoccupied with the news from Afghanistan. And not just from the military withdrawals and all the, the circumstances that went along with that, but depending on the news sources that you listen to, you, you may have heard of Christians who were being killed by the Taliban simply because they were Christians. There were those who, the, the Taliban, if they found a, a Bible on your phone, they would execute you immediately. Um, 
entire churches of people were put to death. I heard one account, it was sort of gruesome, but a person who was accounting how they were listening on the phone as they heard in the background an entire church being wiped out by the Taliban. It's, it's a, a very sobering thing um, to see Christians being killed simply for being disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and there's so many uh, Christians around the world that understand this so much better than we do of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They understand what it means when Jesus will say here in a couple of chapters as we come to it, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They understand that. Because in Jesus' day, when people took up a cross, they usually died on that cross. In other words, uh, being a disciple of Christ involves death oftentimes. And, and when we hear that, we hear verses like Mark 8, 34, we oftentimes think about death in the sense of dying to ourself. And there is an aspect of that which is true about Mark's gospel. There is a, a call to die to self, but sometimes it involves death at the hands of wicked people, sometimes even physical death for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, and I want us to understand this morning that being on witness with Jesus, and what I, excuse me, being on witness, being on mission with Jesus, and what I mean by mission, I don't mean like being a missionary and going to the mission field. I'm talking about the mission of the church. Whenever we hear uh, evangelism, witnessing, uh, missionaries, we might think of the nuances of those words, and they do have certain distinctions in them, but they're all sort of talking about the same thing. That it's all the church carrying out the mission of the church to go and to make disciples. And part of that making disciples means we go and we, we share our faith. We, we tell people about Jesus Christ. And being on mission with Jesus, being a witness, involves a willingness to be martyred for Him or laying down our lives for Christ's sake. And that's what this passage is about this morning, about mission and martyrdom. And I, I want that just to seek in just a little bit. I want us to think about that. You know, we, we are made to, to grapple with God's Word. He, he reveals to us and we receive that revelation and we, we, we seek to understand that and to live that and, and apply that. But we need to be careful that we don't take these words that we've read today and try to twist them and make the Word of God conform to our lives, but we need to seek to conform our lives to what God says in His Word. We need not to say, oh yeah, I was martyred the other day. You know, I, you know, somebody said an unkind word to me or, you know, I, I think I got passed over for a promotion because they knew I was a Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people uh, who are suffering for their faith, mission and martyrdom. And, and I want us to see that Mark emphasizes this, lest you think I'm making this all up about mission and martyrdom. Look at the text, okay? And go back to what we talked about last week in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Jesus is sending out the 12, right? Um, and, and they go out and they do their work, and, and of course Mark records that. But then skip down to verse 30. Verse 30 we read the, the apostles returning after their short-term mission trip, and it says the apostles returned to Jesus 
and told him all that they had done and taught. And then in verse 31, then it just is Jesus saying, hey, let's retreat for a while and be sort of refreshed and, and renewed. So it sort of goes on to a different topic. Now, I think it's interesting. Why did Mark record this this way? Why didn't Mark take verse 30 and make it verse 14? Why didn't he just finish the story? Why didn't he just finish the account of Christ? And, and I would suggest to you that if you take out this account of uh, John the Baptist, that verses uh, 7, uh, 7 through 13 and then verse 30 all fit together perfectly. Okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it would read this way. And they cast out many demons, verse 13, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. But you see, Mark separates this, verse 4, a reason. Because Mark wants us to see that John's death has to do with mission. You see mission in verses uh, 7 through 13... And you see mission in verse 30. But in verses 14 through 29, you see martyrdom. It's almost like a sandwich, right? You've got two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle. And the martyrdom is the meat in the middle. And he wants us to see that this martyrdom that is done is done in light of the mission of the church. And so in one sense, uh, you could almost do without the account that we're talking about today. Uh, it almost seems like a distraction from the main story. But really, Mark wants to interrupt the story. He wants to make a point he, so that we might have a realistic view of the mission of the church. He wants us to see that the mission of the church is not just about preaching. Uh, it's not just about maybe being rejected from time to time or, or unbelief. But it's also about being willing to come and to literally die for our faith if the Lord calls us to do so. To be on mission with Jesus is to be prepared to be martyred. Now, I'll just tell you, that's not really something you want to put on your church sign, is it, right? <laughs> you go by these churches and they have all these cutesy little sayings to try to get you to come to their church and stuff. And I think if we put out on the marquee out here in front of the shopping center, come to Jesus and die. No, literally. I don't think we're probably going to get most of Andover to come and to be part of our church, right? But we can't deny, brothers and sisters, what the Scripture teaches. And, and Mark conveys this truth of missions and martyrdom. But what's interesting is, he doesn't do it against the backdrop of terrorism and the Taliban, but he does it against the backdrop of greed and decadence and power and sex and adultery and wealth. Because that's the world of King Herod that we're going to be looking at today. His life was sort of like the, the life of the rich and famous. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Because I think it can be sort of confusing what the Bible says about Herod. Because you swear he's mentioned like all over the New Testament. Well, the Bible really uh, is talking about four King Herods. Okay, That's why it can get sometimes confusing. The most famous is King Herod the Great. He was the King Herod that was alive when Jesus was a little baby. And you remember he wanted to try to, to kill Christ. Well, that King Herod, Herod the Great, had ten wives and he had four sons. And before he died, he decided to divide up his kingdom amongst his four sons. And so these uh, kings were known as, as uh, King Herod Tetrarch, which is 
a ruler of a fourth part, okay? A ruler of a fourth part, a fourth of the kingdom. And this Herod in our passage was the second son of King Herod the Great. He was called Herod Antipas. This is the Herod that Jesus called that fox in Luke chapter 13, 32. Because he was a man who was very cunning. He was very sly, but he was also full of malice. And what I mean by that, kids, is he had a desire to hurt other people, right? He didn't, he didn't care if he caused other people pain. For example, Herod pursued Herodias, okay? She was the wife of his half-brother, Philip. But he convinced her to divorce her husband and marry him, and she did. Now, many commentators believe that Herodias was Herod's niece. That just tells you how twisted all of this sort of gets and how perverted it is. But Herod didn't matter. He, w he was not only an adulterer, but he was also someone who liked comfort. He liked pleasure. He liked luxury. And so you can see that this persecution that takes place, this martyrdom, is done against the backdrop of greed and decadence and power and lust and wealth. And that's why, as we look at this, we can relate to this, can we not? Is this not the culture in which we live and the things that we see in our country today? And that's the world in which Jesus calls his disciples to go and to follow him and go and tell others. And it's in such a world that we see the cost of discipleship and carrying out the mission of the church. And this passage really gives us insight into the life of one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I want us to look at it this morning and I want us to see four things. I, I just want to say I, I really appreciate Johnny Gibbs and the insights that I gained from him regarding this. But he, first of all, Jesus talks about uh, the, that mission involves speaking about Jesus. Mission involves speaking about Jesus. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Uh, he had most likely heard of Christ. He obviously from this passage had heard of his power. But it's very likely from the context that Herod heard about Jesus through the mission of his disciples. Uh, of course, Herod had heard about Jesus, I'm sure, from John the Baptist because we read in Mark chapter 1 how John was the forerunner. He was the one pointing people to Christ. And so I couldn't imagine that, that John the Baptist and all the different conversations that he had with Jesus or with uh, Herod didn't tell him about Jesus and so he pointed him to Christ uh, that's what the mission of the church is all about people getting to hear about Jesus now at this point you might be going well duh Pastor Rick that's pretty obvious you know that that's what the mission is about but mission is not mission if people do not get to hear about Jesus Christ Maybe another way of saying this is disciples are not being disciples if people don't get to hear about Jesus. There's a lot of talk today in the church about being missional or about being radical disciples. And that's great to one extent, but to another extent, what this really involves is people talking about social justice rather than talking about Jesus. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not like there has to be a dichotomy there between telling people about Jesus and being concerned about social concerns. I mean, James, Jesus' brother, 
uh, makes this point in James chapter 1, verse 27. He talks about what religion is. And he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God is into social justice, if you want to put it that way, and, and so we should. But the mission of the church is about speaking about Jesus to the orphans and widows and anyone else we meet. In other words, we don't want to save people from their homelessness. We want to save people from hell. Now, it doesn't mean we don't minister to their physical needs. Like I said, there's not necessarily a dichotomy there, but sometimes the, the tall the talk about missional and being radical disciples can be more about physic, meeting only the physical needs and not sharing Christ. And the only way uh, people get to do this is if they hear about Jesus. If that's the only way they are saved from hell. And that's where the challenge lies, right? It's, it's very easy in our everyday lives, in our school and in our work and in our neighborhoods to talk about ourselves in religious terms but never to talk about Jesus. Uh, people don't seem to get offended if we talk about our church. Oh, you ought to come to Kirk of the Plains. You know, it, it's this and it's that. And, you know, we do this and we do that. And it's just a great body of believers. And we can talk about that. People uh, don't get upset by that. They don't get upset when we talk about the programs of the church. But you talk to them about Jesus. You tell them about a sermon that you heard where Jesus was priest. And then all of a sudden they can get very offended. And that's the challenge. If all we do is talk about our Christian lives in vague religious terms, you know, I go to church, I believe in a creator God, I'm against abortion, then we're not doing mission. We're not talking about Jesus. We're not sharing Jesus with others. I mean, even non-Christians go to church, and Jews and Muslims believe in a creator God, and other faiths are against abortion. Brothers and sisters, to be missional... To be a disciple is to talk about Jesus, to tell others about Jesus. And if we are not prepared to talk about Jesus, and we're not really disciples of Jesus, because Mark tells us in verse 14 that Jesus' disciples made him known. Herod heard about Jesus. The second point, uh, mission is not only talking about Jesus, but it involves receiving rejection because of Jesus. Mission involves receiving rejection because of Jesus. It's not like we go out and we look for rejection, but that is oftentimes what comes as a result of talking about Christ. You see, Herod hears about Jesus, but he rejects him. Look at verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some say John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said... He's Elijah. Another said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. As I said earlier, I'm sure that John the Baptist has talked to Herod about who Christ was, because that's who he pointed him to. He said, there's someone greater than me who is coming. And all the things that Herod had heard and seen, and especially about Christ's miraculous powers, showed that he was who he said he was, and yet Herod does not acknowledge Jesus for who he is. He simply says instead, this, this must be John. And that's what we need to be prepared for as disciples of Jesus, that as we speak to Jesus, as we speak of Jesus to our 
co-workers and our friends and neighbors and family that we need to be prepared for the rejection that comes. Of course, it's our prayer that as we're, we're talking to people and sharing Christ with them, that that might pique their interest or even that they would desire to come to faith in Him. And as we speak to others, we, we don't want to do so in a way that unnecessarily offends people, you know, in the name of truth. We want to be kind. We want to speak winsomely and stuff. But when we do speak of Jesus, we need to be prepared to experience rejection. We ought not to be surprised when that happens. Much like Jesus spoke to his disciples in verse 11, he said to them flat out, you're going to go out and I want you to preach the gospel, but you will be rejected. I will tell you this at times, not all the time, but sometimes you will be rejected. And when you are rejected, just shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. So mission involves being um, rejected. But even more than that, our third point, mission involves being persecuted for Jesus' sake. Look at verses 17 through 20. You see, the reason Herod thinks that Jesus could be John the Baptist is because of his guilty conscience before, uh, for beheading John. And that's why Mark puts it in this account, uh, the beheading of John. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, that, that is against John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When uh, he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, before John was beheaded, John was persecuted. Herod had seized him and he'd thrown him in prison. And of course, he did so because, as it states in the text, it's not lawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. Now, John called Herod to account for his adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, John still refers, or excuse me, Mark still refers to Herodias as Herod's brother's wife. He doesn't call her Herod's wife. You notice that? Because really she wasn't. She had committed a, adultery. In, in other words, it doesn't matter uh, what the powers to be say about your marriage. God is going to say it the way it is. And, and here, as John is preaching, he is preaching according to God's law. And he says, according to God's law, you're, she's not your wife. He was basically saying to her, hey guys, look, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. You're breaking the Seventh Commandment. You're committing adultery. You're breaking the Eighth Commandment because you're stealing another man's wife. You're breaking the Tenth Commandment because you're coveting another man's wife. But what's surprising about what John the Baptist does here is that he holds Herod to Jewish law. Now, you have to understand that Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomite, not an Israelite. And so uh, he was also a puppet king of Rome. So he was really under Caesar, and he was bound by Roman law, not Jewish law. So you might say, why would John be talking about the laws of the Jews to this pagan heathen man rather than their own laws? And the reason is, is because God's law applies to the whole human race. Brothers and sisters, we need not to forget that. As we are out preaching the gospel, we're not sharing our opinion. We're not sharing about 
what uh, you know Christians believe. I mean, it is what we believe, but we are proclaiming the Word of God and what He says and what He brings to bear upon people's lives. God's law is not a private, personalized law only applicable to Jews and Christians. John doesn't say to Herod, Look, Herod, I know uh, in your secular culture you define marriage differently, but may I at least share with you my own personal religious perspective? And then we can sort of agree to disagree, right? And uh, that we have different perspectives on this. That's not what John says. John says... You are breaking the law of God. Because God's law transcends race and religion and status. It's transcultural. But just because it's transcultural doesn't mean people want to hear it. Matter of fact, Jesus says in, in John chapter 3, verse 19, John 3, 19, Jesus said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't like the light. They don't like it. But Jesus goes on and he tells why. He said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work shall be exposed. See, they don't want their sins to be known. Herodias didn't want her sins to be known. Herod didn't want her sins to be known. He... He, he sort of liked John, but yet he didn't like what he said. And th this describes it as John is shining the light of the Word of God into their lives. He's shining it into their hearts and even shining the light of the Word of God into their bedroom. And they didn't like that. And as disciples of Christ, when we share the gospel, we hold out such a standard that is applicable to all of humanity and we call people to repent of their sins against God and His law. And that's where we're going to feel pressure as Christians in our humanistic, relativistic culture. You see, our culture wants to privatize God's law and they want us to apply it to our own lives or our own households. They're like, look, I don't care if you believe the Ten Commandments, just don't push it on me. And that's where they are. Well, actually, now we're sort of moving beyond that. And culture doesn't even want... They want to dictate what we believe privately. But John the Baptist is a perfect example of a faithful disciple. Brothers and sisters, the message of Jesus is true for all cultures at all times. Involving and calling all people to repentance. For breaking a standard that's true for all people. And when we do that. We need to be prepared that there will be times of persecution. doesn't mean that every person you share the gospel with is going to persecute you. But persecution does not come only if you preach the word of God. Uh, it comes uh, even if you don't preach the word of God sometimes. Even if you just stand up for your convictions. Even if you live out your faith. Sometimes it will cost you. I think about the couple who uh, were approached the shop owner that was approached by a, a gay couple that said, we want you to make a wedding cake. And they didn't preach the gospel. They didn't stand up on the counter of their store and preach against the, the, the wickedness of homosexuality or, or anything like that. They just said, you know, our Christian beliefs don't allow us to make a, a wedding cake for you. But if you want to go down the street, you can do that. But they were sued 
and all kinds of slanderous things were said against them simply before, because they stood up for their faith. I think about, uh, this is an illustration I know you've heard before, but the True Life account, my son and I, when we went, Ben and I, when we went to Bangladesh, and we went to a site uh, where the, the local Christians were going to build a church building, and they were all excited, and they were showing us, and as we're sitting there looking at the site, we see this mob of people over there doing destroying the property where they were going to build the church, and then this mob makes their way over to the van where we're in, and they just begin to attack us. I mean, they took stones and sticks and rocks and dirt clods and everything and broke windows out of the van and everything. And, and I remember, as you know, partly you're like covering your head so you don't get, uh, you know, hurt worse than what you are. But, you know, at, at the same time, I'm sort of looking up out the window and there is such hate on the face of these people. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I have never met these people, and yet they hate me so much. Why? See, that's, we're not used to that as Christians. You know, we sort of come as a church in America from sort of a, a historical perspective where the church has sort of gained some political favor, sometimes through the Republican Party in, in the past, and they've had influence, and Christians have been somebody in the culture, at least politically. Well, praise God, in one sense, the Lord's taking that away from the church, and that's no longer the case. But we are used to people liking us and people loving us, and that's shifting and that's changing. And brothers and sisters, that persecution will come more and more and more, not because of anything we have done, simply because we are associated with Jesus Christ and people don't like the light. They don't like the light of the Son of God who has come into the world. And so these Muslim students um, who were led by their imam was coming to attack us simply because we, they knew that we were Christians and we were associated with Jesus Christ. I know for many of us, we may not experience anything quite that drastic, it may be that as you talk about Jesus at work, people will sort of roll their eyes or, you know, maybe they'll make some comments or, or maybe you will lose friends because they hear that you're Christians and so they don't want anything more to do with you. Uh, it might be that you might lose a job, but the reality is if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus, then we need to be prepared to face persecution. As Jesus' disciples, we're on mission to speak of Christ to experience rejection of Jesus, but it also involves persecution for Jesus. And that brings us to our third point, and that's really the point of the sermon. Uh, mission involves being willing to die like Jesus died. It's being willing to die like Jesus died. Now when I say that, die like Jesus, I don't mean that we'll be crucified on the cross, but Jesus died and we need to be prepared to die. And that's what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, the persecution escalates to death. And, and we see in verses 21 through 29 about how Herod decided to, to have a party. And, uh, and while he had the party, uh, there was uh, Herodias' daughter who came out and danced, most likely Philip's daughter as well, came out and danced and he pleased Herod and, and the officials that were there with him. And so Herod, you know, these, these kind of events were sort of 
drunken brawls and stuff. So he was probably wasted. And, uh, you know, he desires this young lady. He promises her up to half her kingdom. He'll give her anything she wants. She goes. She asks her mother. Her mother says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And Herodias, I could not express to you uh, the hate that she had. I think it's interesting. John is in prison. He's no longer speaking, in one sense, into to Herodias' life. He's, he's put in prison. And yet she still wants him dead. It's almost as if she could say, I cannot live happily ever after until that man is dead. She so despises him. And, and so then this opportunity presents itself in verse 21 with this big celebration. And so the daughter comes and she asks her mother and, and Herodias says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. So the daughter returns to King Herod and we read in verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste. See the urgency there? She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I don't know. It's, it's almost as if Herodias didn't want to waste a second. Maybe she thought, well, you know, I want to do this before the alcohol wears off or before the king comes to his senses. I don't know what, what the urgency was, but Herodias is ruthless and she's cut through. Well, okay. Yeah, she's literally cut through. You know, I guess you could say. But uh, in spite of the fact that, that Herod really didn't want to do this, he did it anyway because he feared men more than he feared God. And uh, he's such a people pleaser. And we read in verses 26 through 29, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And they did bring the head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and then she gave it to her mother. Now I know, kids, what you're thinking right now, oh, gross. That's gruesome. They cut off somebody's head and they put it on a plate or a platter. Now, why would John give us that kind of detail? Surely he didn't want us to preach that on Sunday morning to a church full of kids. No, he does. You know, why does Mark give us these details? He wants us to show us the ultimate cost of discipleship. The ultimate cost of discipleship. You see, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ in his life. But in one sense, he was sort of the forerunner of Christ in his death as well. John died at the hands of a man who liked, to listen, uh, who liked to listen to him, just like Jesus did when he met with Pilate. John's death sentence came from a man who was too weak to protect him and, and in the end satisfied the wishes of the crowd. And in the same way, Jesus did before Pilate as well. John died an innocent victim without a fair trial, and likewise, Jesus did not get a trial a fair trial before Pilate, but they had judges or they had witnesses who contradicted themselves, and yet they still accepted their witness. John died alone, and Jesus died alone as well. And so John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. He, he pre prefigured Jesus's death, but he did so because he was a disciple of Christ, carrying out the mission that was given to him. It just sort of reminds me of what God says to us. And I want us to, to turn, if we could, to, to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12. 
And I want us to read this passage just thinking about the things that we've heard this morning. And just let it sort of soak in to what God is calling us to as His disciples. Beloved, what a, what a term of endearment. Beloved, those of you I love so much, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you claim to be a disciple of Jesus? If you do, there will be scars uh, in your life. Because being a disciple means that you carry the scars of the one that you follow. Uh, uh, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, says this, For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks or the scars of Jesus. And see, as his children, we are to carry the scars of Jesus, like John the Baptist did. When was the last time you or I picked up even just a little scar for talking about Jesus? When, when were we uh, persecuted? When were we rejected? None of us obviously were martyred yet. But when did we get, did we get just a little scar? Are, we, are you willing to bear the scars for Jesus? Let's bow our heads and meditate upon this work this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, we just thank you for, for preserving it and keeping it faithful to deliver it to us that we might hear it preached and, and read this morning. Lord, I pray that we would take to heart these things, that your spirit would drive home uh, this, the somberness, the, the solemnity of, of this message of a call to come and to die if you so choose to call us to do so. We remember, Lord, so many around the world who have given their lives and we do pray for them and lift them up to you this morning. Pray for their families that were left behind. Pray for your comfort and your peace for them. So, Lord, we pray that we may have such a love for you 
God, I think in the country in which we live, it's so easy to be soft and, and to want to be comfortable and to sort of play both sides of, of what it means to be a Christian and yet to enjoy the things of this world. But Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would forsake the things of this world, and that our love, our first and our only love, would be for you. Oh God, please work in our hearts, change us, mold us, shape us to be like Jesus Christ, that we would gladly lay down our lives for you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.